clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's session will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and former United States National Security Advisor, General H.R. McMaster. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com. You can also access this and all past Rockefeller Capital Management special client events by searching for the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series in your favorite podcast player. And with that, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management's President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good afternoon, clients of Rockefeller, friends of Rockefeller, and our colleagues. And welcome to another terrific event in the client series that we began roughly a year ago when the pandemic commenced. Today, it's our great pleasure to have General Herbert Raymond H.R. McMaster here as our special guest. General McMaster has had a spectacular career and impact across nearly four decades. A few highlights. He graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1984 and later received a PhD in American history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He led soldiers and organizations in wartime multiple times, receiving numerous commendations, including a Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, and three Army Distinguished Service Medals. He's the author of the award-winning book, Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, The Joint Chiefs of Staff, and The Lies That Led to Vietnam, and more recently, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. From his current position as a visiting fellow at Stanford University, uh, Stanford's Institute for International Studies, General McMaster is front and center writing, speaking, and driving key discussion and debate across the geopolitical landscape. We're fortunate to have him here with us today. Uh, one of the things that we've had fun with leading up to this is that the General is also on the board of Zoom. So this is his first Microsoft Teams event. So uh, the entire tech team right up to Joe Ferlizzi is intent on this going smoothly from a technology standpoint so far so good. Great to have you with us, uh, General McMaster, uh, this afternoon. Hey, Greg, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, and and I still think Zoom is better, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to the end. Give it a chance, as we've been saying. Uh, but uh, you know, I appreciate the loyalty, and I would expect somebody who's been, um, you know, who spent, uh, I guess it was, uh, thirty-four years in the military to be a loyal uh, person. So um, uh, we understand that. Um, but you know, General, that that's my first question for you, just to, for the audience to get to know you a little bit. Um, your your career, I mean, you you entered the military uh, when you graduated from West Point in 1984. You spent 34 years there, which is uh, which is very special. Very few people do that. Three-star general. I mean, that's a, a, a small group over the course of the history of the United States. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that career and then? Uh, how you felt when you retired from the military in 2018 after all that time and all that uh, success and all that leadership? Well, hey, Greg, th thanks for that question. You know, I grew, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and and uh, from my earliest memory, I, I wanted to serve in our army. And I, I think it, be it was because my father served in the Korean War and stayed in the reserve. So so uh, he was the, the a first sergeant of an infantry company, a reserve infantry company in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia. I grew up in Roxborough and I would see him you know, go to drills. And so I was aware of military service from you know, very young age. 
and was and was drawn to the army in particular because I wanted to lead teams uh, that that were part of of a mission bigger than themselves, and teams that were bound together, you know, by mutual trust and and respect and and common purpose, and and so. Um, I found it to be tremendously rewarding, you know, in, in, in what is typically the reverse of, of what is the norm, I guess. I begged my parents to go to military school. I went to Valley Forge Military Academy uh, and then went on to West Point. But you know, after I graduated from West Point, I thought maybe five years in the, in the Army. That's what I told my fiance at the time, Katie. And, um, and so when Katie roasted me at my retirement party, she said, thank you for the bonus 29 years. I was going to get out after five but you know what happened, Greg? Is I just found every assignment tremendously rewarding. Uh, you know, the the military I think is a, is a great career because it is kind of the adult education model. You have challenging formative experiences, and then you get to reflect on those experiences and and prepare for the next level of responsibility. And and I was inspired by the soldiers and 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 servicemen and women alongside whom I served. Uh, these are are young people who are willing to give everything, including their own lives for one another uh, and in service of, of our nation. And it was, I just found it just too hard to leave. And to answer your second question, when, it, when I left, you know, I knew I would miss it. I do miss it. I, I miss, you know, I miss uh, you know, bu building teams, being part of teams uh, that, that are part of missions bigger than themselves and are willing to sacrifice for one another. Uh, but I think I found a good a good alternative within universities at at Stanford University at at um, at Arizona State University where I have an affiliation now and and I'm just inspired by you know our younger generation the the generation that that is often pilloried you know as as creatures of social media and self-absorbed and so forth and uh, but but I'll tell you I think there's a tremendous untapped desire to serve and and uh, and, and being at a university has given me the opportunity to continue to interact with uh, with young people. That's terrific. I mean, uh, you know, that that kind of career, it has to be a lot about leadership and about the people. Uh, and frankly, I'm raising three uh, millennials, Generation Z in their early 20s, uh, and I'm with you. I think that those generations have a lot to offer, uh, and, and some of the things you hear about them are, are just not accurate. I think they're going to have a major impact, and they're part of the dialogue we're going to have here you're going to we're going to talk about topics where you're going to set it up 10 20 30 years out and these are going to be the stewards of uh of the decisions that are so important for this country uh you know as we move forward you know one thing general before we get into the topics one more thing on your career one of the things i was reading um different uh you know articles and, and things uh about you and, and the things you've done over time leading up to this and uh one of the things that you seem to have done particularly well which is definitely not easy in the military. It's also not easy in, in corporations and in the corporate world is you've been um, an agent of change and direct uh, about what works and doesn't. And yet you you succeeded inside this, this uh, incredible organization for 34 years, rising to a three-star general. How did those two things work in tandem? And I, you know, I would imagine there were times when you were trying to thread thread the you know the messaging i mean even the first book you wrote which was so successful but dereliction of duty coming from somebody who was front and center in the military at the time you wrote that that's a, a heck of a phrase but you, you pulled it off you, you you were an agent of change you were direct you were forthright and you also led and were successful how, how did those two things go hand in glove well greg I, you know, I think actually in the military it's quite different from what is what is uh what, what people typically think about about the military. It is more open than people imagine. 
toward to self-criticism. And I think it's because the stakes are so high. I mean, they involve life and death. So so I, I've always felt encouraged to speak my mind and and uh, and to if I saw uh, that there were flaws in policies or strategies to point them out. And then, of course, to have a recommendation about how to do it better. And I don't think, Greg, you can go wrong in any organization if you begin with what you're trying to achieve. What is what is the overarching goal? What are the more specific objectives? Get agreement on that, you know, from your bosses and 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 senior commanders in, in my case. And then just make the observation that, well, if those are our goals and objectives, we, we may not be taking full advantage of, of opportunities. There might be a better way for us to accelerate progress and or to overcome obstacles uh, to, to progress. And I think most people are, are receptive to that. I, I think there are very few who are not, and those tend to be people who are less secure, I think, in, the, in their own abilities oftentimes. And I, I thought it would always be a disservice to a commander not to tell a commander uh, you're, you're, or not to give a commander your best assessment or to make recommendations. And and this is what I wrote about in Dereliction of Duty was that many of Lyndon Johnson's advisors concluded that to maintain their influence with the president, they should tell the president only what, what Lyndon Johnson wanted to hear. Now, of course, you know, that begs the question of what good is your influence anyway, right? And so uh, that's the approach I took as national security advisor as, as well. And and sometimes it can get you used up in a job, uh, but but I think really there's no there's no alternative uh, other than to to give frank assessments and and best advice and candid feedback. Well, those are fantastic leadership lessons there, and I would uh, wholeheartedly endorse uh, what you said uh, from the, the 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 things that I've seen in my career. Uh, and one of the things that allows one to be part of creating a great organization, which we're working hard at at, at Rockefeller is uh, the multiple voices, the different perspectives, making sure they're heard, even if it's uncomfortable. I sometimes have senior colleagues of mine saying, you're not going to want to hear this, but, and there it comes. And you, you can be certain sometimes, as you know, you don't want to hear it. But if you don't hear it and you don't say, OK, I get it, then uh, the organization ultimately can't prosper. And uh, you know, I, I credit to you to have done that for so many years in our military on behalf of all of us. So you know, I'll thank Thank you uh, right up front here from uh, from all of us at Rockefeller for your service. Um, well, let, let's let's jump to well, there's so much to talk about, um, and and even be, between when you and I spoke a week or two ago and today, you know, we've got the the summit with the Chinese in Alaska, where there's this you know new material every day right now in the world. You know, I thought we'd start with um, your perspective, um, and China will probably fit into this. But the top two or three geopolitical challenges for the United States now in 2021, new administration, you know, if, if you were preparing the briefing for President Biden on, you know, President Biden, I've got a half an hour of your time. Let me tell you two or three things you really need to focus on. Where would you start him? Well, yeah, I would start with China. I think it's going to be the defining competition of this century. And it's going to be the defining competition because the Chinese Communist Party is determined not only to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power internally, but to, to more aggressively promote its authoritarian mercantilist model and to do so at, at our expense, our being really our, our free and open societies and, and our free market economic systems uh, and the international order broadly. And, and I think I would just highlight the fact that, that this competition uh, is going to continue 
uh, as long as the Chinese Communist Party adheres uh, to to its desire uh, to 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 maintain its exclusive grip on on power, uh, and uh, and 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 to do so again by you know sort of perfecting this Orwellian technologically enabled surveillance police state by engaging in 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 genocidal in a campaign of slow genocide in Xinjiang to extend um, its repressive arm uh, in into Hong Kong to build its its firewall ever ever higher. But but also to, to realize the, the narrative of national rejuvenation, because this is also a mechanism for the party to remain uh, to, to remain in, in power. And so I, the reason I think it's such an important competition is because if the party, if the Chinese Communist Party succeeds, the world will be less free, less prosperous and less safe. And this is a competition that, as all of your clients know, probably better than anybody, cuts across the, the public and, and, and private sectors. So we, we need a sustained and, and comprehensive effort to compete in a transparent manner. Uh, I think you saw that in this in this declassified Indo-Pacific strategy, one of the foundational documents that I had the opportunity to work on uh, as national security advisor. Uh, and I think you, you see that the, the Biden administration will have a, a high degree of continuity in its approach uh, toward a free and open Indo-Pacific and to competing uh, with the with the aggressive policies of the Chinese Communist Party. So. So, I, of course, that's that's number one. I mean, the piece of advice I would just give is do not fall for it. It being Chinese Communist Party false promises of cooperation uh, on, on climate change, for example, or on the denuclearization of North Korea, uh, because those will be false promises, just like the false promises they made upon entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001, for example, or the false promises they recently made. Um, uh, under this you know, comprehensive agreement on investment uh, with Europeans, which still has not passed parliament, obviously. But I, you know, I think we need an approach, Greg, and this is the perfect audience for me to have this kind of discussion, is, is we, we really need almost a Hippocratic oath uh, for doing business in China and with Chinese entities. And, and I think it has three components, uh, all, all of which go to doing no harm. I think first, do no harm by not aiding and abetting uh, the party's efforts to gain a unfair differential advantage over us militarily uh, or in the emerging data-driven global economy. And, and that would be due, you know, in the areas of, of transfer of sensitive technologies and intellectual property uh, in a way that, that or investments uh, into Chinese companies uh, that allow them to give advantage to the People's Liberation Army, uh, for, for example, uh, or, or to, uh, or to, to take uh, intellectual property and technology, uh, and subsidize the use of that technology and intellectual property in a way uh, that undercuts our competitiveness in terms of not only market share within China, uh, but internationally. As China produces these goods at artificially low prices, dumps them on the international market, and and squeezes our companies out of out of market share. The second would be, hey, don't help them uh, establish this Orwellian police state internally. Uh, with, with investments in, in, in companies like SenseTime and others uh, that are involved in, in their perfection of, of this police state. And, and in third, don't compromise long-term viability for our companies in, in pursuit of short-term gains. And, uh, and so I, I think that really there has to be a recognition of the nature of this competition at this stage. What China's done just since COVID-19, I think, should have clarified that for just about everybody. The, the, se the second the second area that I would focus on is, is this problem associated with jihadist terrorism centered on South Asia and Afghanistan 
and across the greater Middle East. And I know Americans are tired of, you know, of what we're calling now endless wars and so forth, but our, the jihadist terrorists aren't tired, and, and wars don't end when one side disengages. I think we should have learned that from December of 2011 in Iraq, uh, when our withdrawal from, complete withdrawal from Iraq, diplomatic as well as military, I would add, set conditions for the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, which was ISIS, the most destructive terrorist organization in history. I, sadly, I think we're replicating the same error in Afghanistan today. And these jihadist terrorists, I think, are more dangerous today than they were on September 10th, 2001. And, and that's because their orders of magnitude larger, they're better connected than ever, and they are in a scramble to gain access to some of the most destructive weapons on Earth. So because of technological trends, the ease of transfer of these de destructive technologies, and, and the fact that this is a much larger alumni, uh, alumni group of, of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and lashkar e taiba that we have to stay engaged and vigilant, not with hundreds of thousands of troops, but engaged with partner forces abroad. And then, and then finally, and I think the Biden administration is certainly focused on this, uh, are, are, the, are the technological competitions that are going to be critical uh, for, for economic growth, uh, for, for promoting our, our prosperity uh, in the future, but also uh, technologies that are going to be very important to our security, especially ensuring that our systems uh, and our infrastructure is resilient, can degrade gracefully, is not prone to catastrophic failure as our, you know, as our, as our, sur <laughs> the surface area uh, for attacks against us in cyberspace uh, in particular grows. Now uh, with the growth of the internet of things, we, we are, I think, in danger of creating uh, sort, of, sort of some exquisite vulnerabilities uh, in our infrastructure that we really have to, to pay attention to. And the most recent hacks by the Chinese and the Russians, I think highlight some of those vulnerabilities. So, General, if we go back, uh, and, and uh, I think uh, you have China first on the list, and it seems like it's there for everybody now. Uh, uh, really remarkable in some ways as an American uh, Cold War supposedly ended in 1990, and, and now we have uh, this uh, competition that is uh, getting set up for those millennials and Generation Z I talked about as maybe the, the, the competition of, uh, of our lifetimes. Um, so if we go back to China, and, and you're the Biden administration, uh, clearly, they're going to, and Alaska proved this, they're going to have a harder line than uh, maybe anybody would have expected a Democratic administration to have coming in. What will they do in terms of tariffs? What, what are they specifically going to do in terms of technology transfer, intellectual property, and trying to protect that, you know, the hacking and the cyber problems coming our way? You know, what, what types of things will they try to get in place there to change the, 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 uh, the direction of all this with China in particular? Well, you know, I, I, what, I, what I've seen already, which is I think quite positive, is the emphasis on a multinational approach to this problem set. Of course, China will use a divide and conquer approach against us and give easy, easily give market share away from Caterpillar to Mitsubishi or whoever and play us off uh, against each other. Uh, and, and, and so we have to be together, I think, and we being the world's largest economies in particular, the United States, Japan, the European Union, now the UK, and I think we ought to do our best for India and, and as well as others, Australia and so forth, to, to come to come along with us, Canada, like-minded liberal democracies. And I think that that when we do work together to ensure that uh, that, that we can remain competitive and that China, through its through its uh, its authoritarian mercantilist model, does not gain a, a uh, an unfair advantage, 
that will prevail in, in key areas of competition, uh, like uh, internet privacy standards, uh, emerging data standards, and so forth. And, and, uh, and so I, I think that that's a very positive trend that I've seen already from the Biden administration is working in a multilateral format. The sanctions that were just announced in response to the, to the, to, to the genocide in Xinjiang uh, that Europeans joined us on, uh, and of course, you know, evoke the ire of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, uh, I think that's, that's quite positive. Uh, so I, I think that trend is, that's, is in the right direction. I think that a lot of the, the programs and efforts started under the Trump administration will continue. You know, the, the, the standing up the, the China division within the Department of Justice and, and the, you know, the, the, the scores of investigations, hundreds of investigations that are now open on, on Chinese industrial espionage uh, and recognizing that we have to defend ourselves against really this sustained campaign of, of, of espionage, which, which includes uh, physical espionage as, as well as, as cyber espionage activities associated with you know, advanced persistent threat 10, for example. And I, I would encourage anybody, if they haven't looked at it, I mean, look at that indictment from December of, of 2018, uh, with, which the Justice Department rolled out, I think, with 12 other countries and an unprecedented uh, degree of, of uh, multinational cooperation from a law enforcement perspective as well as from a sanctions perspective. I think in terms of trade enforcement mechanisms and tariffs, I don't really see any of those going away <laughs> because I don't see China addressing uh, those unfair trade and economic practices in a way that would provide an incentive uh, for, for us to, uh, to remove tariffs. In fact, I think there could be more tariffs and restrictions associated especially with forced labor. And as more and more of the information comes out about China's use of, of forced labor in Xinjiang, for example, and you've seen that the coverage with that with uh, with, with uh, cotton cultivation as, as just one one of, uh, of of many examples. So you know I, I think it's going to get even more difficult from a, a trade and economic discourse perspective. And I, I think that the outlier, Greg, and you know, and 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 uh, I'd love to have a conversation with your more of your clients about this at some point. I think the outlier is Wall Street. The, the, Wall Street hasn't gotten the memo yet. Uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is, is not going to reform. It's going to continue its aggressive activities. Uh, and I think we're moving toward a couple flashpoints that could could lead to a more abrupt rending uh, of economic relationships with with uh, with China. So I just think it's prudent. And I think I think complete decoupling is that that's a red herring. okay? I, I think that what we should do is 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 really is really invest, make investments, allow investments based on this kind of Hippocratic oath I mentioned. Uh, but we have to be prepared, I think. Uh, to, for supply chains that are overly dependent on China to be interrupted, uh, for example. And we ought to do everything we can uh, to, to, uh, to, to guard against that in, in sensitive areas in particular, like pharmaceuticals or rare earth metals uh, that are now going to be you know, absolutely essential to, to growing uh, renewable energy uh, and, and uh, shifting to electric cars, for example, which use five times more rare earths than a car with a internal combustion engine, and China's been pretty smart about trying to get a lock uh, on, on the global supply chain involving rare earths. You know, John McMaster, uh, immediately questions come in on this topic, so we'll stay with it for a little bit. So one of my colleagues, Billy Fenrich, is asking about uh, whether we should have a strong physical naval presence in the South China Sea. And then uh, Jacob Crow just came in, what should U.S. policy be with respect to Taiwan? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, military presence in the region and, and what could happen with Taiwan. I was talking to our chief investment officer in uh, 
and our wealth management business, Jimmy Chang, who, who's uh, from Taiwan and he has family there. And we were talking about the the uh, semiconductor, uh, the fact that the, the, the greatest semiconductor companies in the world now and processes are in Taiwan. Uh, that TSMC plant, that one plant alone, right? Yeah, exactly. Which right, exactly. makes more than. And we a, saw what just happened in Japan, right, with the disruption of of, uh, of chip manufacturing, the effect that had on the auto industry just this past week, right? Yeah. So so now Taiwan becomes more than just a uh, you know a democratic ally that uh, we we need to defend, um, but it's also of strategic economic importance. So how how uh, will the administration, this one, subsequent administrations, the military, how will they respond uh, with the military presence, and and how do we uh, ring fence Taiwan in a in a world where uh, you know that's got to be something that this this uh, the the Communist Party in China is thinking about uh, uh, very seriously right now. Well, you know, I, I write pretty extensively about this in, in Battlegrounds because I believe, I'm telling Greg, this is the flashpoint is, is Taiwan. And and all you have to do is just listen to what Xi Jinping and Chinese Communist leaders say, their, their intentions are, and then look at what their actions have been just since COVID-19 from a from a, a military aggression standpoint. I mentioned, you know, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, but also it's, it's continued weaponization of these islands that they've built in the South China Sea by the way, destroying ecosystems as they've done it, uh, but then ramming Vietnamese vessels and sinking them in the South China Sea. And just about, I think, three weeks ago, giving orders to, to the Coast Guard to fire on vessels that don't recognize what would be the largest land grab, so to speak, in, in history um, if China is to get away with, uh, with uh, exerting control across the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea. This all relates to Taiwan because Xi Jinping is obsessed He's obsessed with making China whole, and and, uh, and and you see this manifest itself in the in the campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang, the extension of the party's repressive arm into Hong Kong, but the continuous threats now on Taiwan, verbal and physical threats with ships, with aircraft, the marshalling of forces, the buildup of forces, including amphibious aircraft across from uh, you know, across from Taiwan. And so what's needed in the South China Sea and in Taiwan is good old fashioned Thomas Schelling deterrence by denial, which means really capabilities and the will, the demonstration of the will uh, necessary to convince the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party leadership that they cannot accomplish their objectives in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, through the use of force. And this is, has a very, very important naval component, as already mentioned, uh, a surface, a subsurface, a, a subsurface component, but also an aerospace component. And I would say very, very importantly, a land component. This is, you know, maybe this is hashtag predictable, you know, for an army general to say, but, but I think it's very important for us to recognize the value, the deterrent value of forward position capable joint forces, including land forces, because the positioning of those forces abroad automatically turned what China would like to make denied space, right? This is the so-called anti-access area denial efforts of, of both the Chinese and the Russians. The forward position forces automatically transformed that into contested space. And so I, I think that you know, this is actually extremely cheap to do because our relatively small numbers of forces plug in to allied and partner forces uh, in the region. You've seen in the South China Sea routine, now naval operations 
uh, by the Australians, the French, the Japanese, the, the British, um, and and uh, and the Indian uh, Navy as well. So, you know, I think deterrence by denial is the way to go. I think the flashpoint that we are approaching, the point of maybe maximum danger, is in 2022, after the Beijing Olympics, and after the Chinese Communist Party Congress, uh, during which Xi Jinping will likely. Uh, be announced as the next Mao Zedong and 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 uh, and chairman for life. So, uh, and I think that's the point of maximum danger. And now, how do you do that? How do you how do you deter in Taiwan? You help the Taiwanese improve their defenses. And President Tsai Ing-wen is in a race to do that. Um, and and uh, I don't think we need to do more than 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 having our military capability there to have this, this strategy of, we call it strategic ambiguity. I don't think it's necessary to commit to absolute defense of Taiwan because there should be enough doubt, right, in, in, the, in the People's Liberations Army's mind, uh, and they should heed the lessons of June 1950, right, when, when North Korea assumed that the United States wouldn't respond to the invasion of South Korea, for example. And it's worth mentioning, I think we have, we have four previous Taiwan Strait incidents, and the United States has responded to all four. I think it would be foolish for uh, for the PLA, the People's Liberation Army leadership, CCP leadership, to assume that the United States won't respond. And and uh, is the Biden administration is it is it? Do you think it's within the way they're approaching it and thinking about it that they they'll go to where you're? I mean, and it's it's actually quite remarkable. It shows you the speed with which this is is uh, is developing and changing. That a democratic administration could go where you're saying. Do you think that they will with uh, maybe American troops in 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 Taiwan in, uh, in the next few years? No, I, I don't. I don't mean the four positioning of troops in Taiwan. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that. So I meant in the, saying I meant in the region in the region broadly. Okay. Right. So we already have. I think you know the our, our, the numbers of U.S. troops in Japan are larger than anywhere else in the world right now overseas. Right. Uh, and then we have about twenty eight thousand, I think, still in in uh, in, in South Korea. But then also we have treaty allies with Thai, with uh, Thailand, you know, which is problematic right now. Uh, with Philippines, problematic, but but with Australia, so I, I'm just and I, and I think in Oceania as as well, uh, you know, routine deployments of troops and and partner capabilities that we develop are are, are important as well. Uh, I think in Taiwan, the arms sales and the assistance to the Taiwanese military advice, that's that's what I think is most important at this stage. And what Taiwan really needs are some asymmetric capabilities, uh, some missile and, and air defense capabilities, for example, uh, that that would that would that would communicate clearly, right, to the to People's Liberation Army. Hey, you you can't you can't uh, you you can't accomplish your objectives vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan through the use of force. Okay. Uh, wow. Uh, why let's move to uh, uh, to Europe uh, because you you mentioned, and this has been one of the positives so far of the. Biden administration, uh, you know, pulling things together on a more multilateral uh, basis, um, and and these are important allies of ours. Uh, how is the situation there? I mean, uh, it's clearly been a struggle through COVID COVID nineteen. Even the rollout of the vaccine hasn't inspired a lot of confidence <laughs> anywhere in the world. But these are important allies. Will they, uh, you know, will they uh, be together with us in the places they need? You know, when you get to Europe, you immediately got to focus on Russia and Putin and, and what what and, and we'll come back to the Middle East. But what's the state of the European alliance alongside the Americans? How does that relate to both the Chinese and to Putin? What's Putin trying to accomplish today? Uh, let, let's shift to that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think the question is, will the Europeans be with each other, and will they be with us, right? And and um, and you know, of course, Europe's problems didn't begin with Donald Trump. I mean, they predated Donald Trump, and they they, they had a lot to do with tensions geographically between East and West and North and South, and as well as uh, as tensions associated with the degree to which uh, the, you know, citizens across across Europe supported the European Union or saw the European Union as an infringement on their national sovereignty. This was all, of course, exacerbated by, you know, by the migration crisis centered on the Syrian civil war and the humanitarian catastrophe and the serial episodes of mass homicide that 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 is that that war enabled, by the way, by uh, by the Russians uh, and the Iranians. Uh, that that create, you know, has created some tripletal forces in Europe that, as you mentioned, predated the pandemic, and the pandemic has in many ways catalyzed some of those tensions. Russia has taken full advantage of the opportunity to really reduce confidence, confidence in the European experiment, confidence uh, in, in the common identity of citizens within European countries to polarize them, much like uh, Russia endeavors to polarize our society and, and, and our polity. Uh, and then, and and then also to to rend uh, relationships within Europe and the transatlantic relationship in particular. And Russia does that with a sustained campaign of political subversion and cyber-enabled information warfare, uh, under really an effort on the part of Putin to drag everybody else down. Right. So Putin, when he came in in the year 2000, he he made it his goal to restore Russia to national greatness. Okay, that's tough to do when your economy is the size of Italy's, right? So you, you have to compete in an asymmetric manner. And I think Putin's theory of victory is to drag everybody else down so he's the last man standing in, in, in Europe. And, you know, he's had some significant success doing that in Europe and in the United States because we should, I think, first of all, stop being our own worst enemy. And and when I when I look at, at Germany in particular, which has been reluctant to make the investments in defense at the same time, as they're enabling Russian uh, uh, economic coercion uh, through through the energy sector with Nord Stream 2, I think, come on, you know, let's hey, let's get a backbone over here. You know, how about why is there a reluctance to 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 ban Huawei and and uh, and uh, and you know, allowing China to control the fifth generation communications network? I mean, is it really logical to expect uh, the Chinese Communist Party to treat your own citizens better than they treat their own people? So I, I think I see some positive momentum uh, being generated by the Biden administration. But, you know, better relationships with allies has to be more than mood music or a better atmosphere at cocktail parties. Right. In, in, uh, in Paris. OK, I think it's time uh, for, you know, for our European friends to, to, to step up and for us to work together. Right. They don't have Donald Trump as an excuse anymore. So it's time, I think, for us to, to build on some of the momentum we already have. I think I think the UK is going to play a, a uh, an anchor role. I would love to see uh, Germany and France play a stronger role. I think Poland uh, is, is is staunch in this connection in terms of standing up to to authoritarianism, whether it, it's it's uh, it's the aggression that manifests itself by from China in a form of economic aggression or uh, from Russia with uh, political subversion. So anyway, I, I think of course Europe is not monolithic or homogeneous. But I do think of that what's good about a Biden administration is a Biden administration will not uh, will not try to exacerbate divisions within Europe. I personally believe that a strong Europe with, with a high degree of of, uh, you know, of, of uh, common interest and common agenda uh, is, is good for our security.
And um, John McMaster, with uh, Germany in particular, is maybe the economic engine, not maybe the economic engine of Europe. Uh, aren't they, they, they somewhat between a rock and a hard place, given the amount of export-driven uh, economy to China? 40% exports, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, hey, that's, hey, this is the object lesson, right? This is the object lesson for all of us. we got to wake up to this. I mean, look at what is happening to Australia right now. And of course, that's not unprecedented. Look at the, the economic coercion aimed at, at, uh, at South Korea, right? Over Thad, for example. So I just think it is in all of our interests to, you know, to, to diversify our export markets, our imports, and our, and, and our supply chains so that they're resilient. I'm not talking about onshoring everything, but, but nearshoring and having multiple sources. Um, you know, I think that's only, it's only prudent to do that. And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, that there are certain sectors, obviously, that are, going to be, that are going to be less susceptible to the coercive power of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think anybody, uh, and I know there are many of you, I think, on this call who do business in China, who have Chinese friends, you know the space for that is being shut down by the party, right? I mean, conversations you used to be able to have with uh, with Chinese nationals that 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 uh, that were candid, uh, I mean, they're afraid to have them anymore, right? So, so I think that, you know, I don't think that the market has built in the risk associated with uh, with, with the party's aggression yet, especially in terms of uh, of the flood of dollars uh, going into go, going into to Chinese equities now. I mean, I think it's just uh, I think it's unwise, frankly. And it's actually I think it's actually uh, it's self-defeating in a lot of ways. I mean, it reminds me of the saying attributed to Lenin that the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we will hang them. I think in many ways we're covering for bad economic decisions that the, that the that uh, that Chinese leadership makes so that they can gain strategic advantage. And we're underwriting, I think, a lot of that uh, effort with our, with our own investment. Uh, well, let's go to the Middle East, which you, you, you mentioned before. Maybe we start with Iran, uh, which uh, looks like it's getting closer and closer to a nuclear capability. Uh, you're, if you're counseling the Biden administration there, what's the advice and, and what should they be doing uh, uh, with, uh, with that country? Well, I, I would if to sum it up, I would say, you know, force them to make a choice, force the, the Iranian leadership, which is really the supreme leader, the Guardian Council and, and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Court, uh, court to make a choice uh, be, between either being, uh, you know, a state support of terrorists and, 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 uh, and a country that continues to wage a, a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel. And the Arab monarchies, or, or be a responsible nation, uh, and, and I think the problem that we've had over multiple administrations, uh, with the exception of the Trump administration, has been that we, we've allowed them to have it both ways, right? And, and I'll tell you, as a, as a right in, in, in battlegrounds, I mean, this was not just an Obama administration phenomenon. Across every single administration, uh, through the Obama administration. Uh, American presidents believed that a conciliatory approach to, to Iran would work uh, or, or, ha or had a, pro a chance for success because, because a, a gesture of goodwill, a conciliatory approach would convince the Iranian leaders that they're really, their interests are more aligned with us and, and that they would cease their permanent hostility. Well, you know, that hasn't happened. And, and, and the reason I think we make this assumption is we undervalue the ideology of the regime and especially the degree to which the ideology of the revolution drives drives the Iranian regime. 
And so I, I, I think that, that Iran ought to continue to suffer economic isolation uh, until, until, until its leaders fundamentally make a different choice. Now, this is going to be a pivotal year because of elections in, in, in Iran. Of course, there'll be rigged elections, right? The, the only people who are allowed to run uh, for, for uh, parliamentary positions are those who are deemed, who are deemed uh, worthy of running, uh, who would not uh, have the temerity to, to criticize you know, the, the rule of the jurisprudent, the rule by the Supreme Leader and so forth, or, or Iranian policies broadly. Uh, but but um, I think it's quite likely that you're going to get kind of a a, a, a hard uh, conservative uh, revolutionary president uh, as a hedge a against uh, Hamenei's uh, age. Because if Hamenei dies, I think what they'll want to do is make sure that anyone who is in a position of power to influence his successor uh, is, is is a staunch conservative. And I think the reality in in Iran is that we always want to believe, right? There's this struggle going on, right? Between the Republicans and the revolutionaries or the or the reformists and, and the hardliners. Hey, but you know, the revolutionaries and hardliners, they won. They won, um, they're in power. They have mechanisms, they, they have control of the mechanisms of power being the beneficial owners of, uh, of large state, uh, large companies and the patronage networks that go along with them. And they're in power and they have the RGC and the besiege, right? To beat, uh, the the Iranian people in, in the submission, so I think it's I think it's really important for us to have a clear-eyed view of who we're dealing with. Uh, Mr. Zarif, you know their foreign minister, he's the shop window of, of the regime. He, he just doesn't matter, and um, and and I think what we don't want to do is, is try to revive this already dead uh, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and what we should do instead uh, is limit the resources the regime has necessary and try to convince the leaders uh, that it is not in their interest. Uh, to, to, to pursue a nuclear weapon or to continue its their four-decade-long proxy wars against us. General, uh, many questions rolling in here, so I'm going to move to uh, a number of these questions, which uh, uh, you're perfectly positioned to answer. Uh, this one is from Adam Hurwitz at Ulysses Management. He says, having grown up in Israel and serving in the military there, I've had firsthand experience of the benefits of national, uh, of universal national service. In the U.S., there is much discussion of national service, not necessarily military only. Can you give us uh, your perspective on how this could be done and if it should be tackled in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it really should. I, th I really thanks for raising that point. It might be unwielding and difficult to do it, you know, to, as mandatory service in, in in the U.S. But but I I think this this presidential commission. I'll have to go back to it again on on uh, on service that was completed maybe about two years ago. Um, had some really, really solid recommendations. So we don't have to wait, you know, for the for the perfect solution of, you know, what some people would regard as a perfect solution is of universal service as a way to, you know, to to maybe strengthening our social fabric, to bring Americans together from all walks of life and you know different identity groups to recognize that that the prejudices and biases that we carry with one another don't hold up, right? That that. That we really should be defined by, as Martin Luther King said, the content of our character rather than the color of our skin. For for example, um, I, I think I think that this is one of the tremendous benefits of service that brings people together from all different walks of life and life and backgrounds and so forth. And uh, and so I, I I think that we can what we can do in the in the in the near term is encourage more young people to serve in organizations like that. I would say. Of course, based on my background, you know, first and foremost among them, the, the military and 
and, uh, and which I believe has been a, a profoundly is a profoundly positive experience for the vast majority of Americans who serve. Uh, and it is an experience that does bring us together um, and, and, uh, and, and strengthens our common identity um, as, as Americans, which I, I think we should be unabashed about. I think it's a, we can celebrate, obviously, you know, sub-identities. We can, we can recognize the tremendous hardships that minorities still endure in our country and take pride in who we are as, as Americans. And, and I really believe that, that what we're seeing today is this destructive interaction uh, between you know, critical race theory and identity politics and you know, white supremacy, bigotry, and racism you know, on the other end maybe of, of the spectrum. And that interaction is creating centripetal forces that are spinning us apart from one another. And, uh, and so I, I think that all of us have a role in this to convene our fellow Americans to, 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 to work together to build a better future for all of our, all of our children. You know? So um, yeah, I, I, think, I think a way to do that now is just to encourage, you know, I mean, you know, Teach for America, Jesuit volunteers, you know, whatever, whatever you know, to, to make more young pre Boys and Girls Club of America to give back to their own communities, um, you know, to, 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 um, you know, to, to reap the rewards of service uh, and also to strengthen really who we are as a people and, and, and our common and really emphasize our common humanity. Uh, I mean, this whole idea uh, that that a particular identity group that you know, determines who you are as a person. I, I just I don't believe that, you know, and I think service is a way to help people come to that conclusion. I, I agree with you. My my uh, father was a captain in the Marines, and it, it dictated everything that followed in life. He never lost uh, a sense of the Marines and the uh, uh, the common elements that bound them together. So, so can you? Uh, I mean, could could the military handle uh, you know bringing millions of Americans through two years of military service? I mean, I know you're extending it beyond that. It could be Teach for America, but what if uh, a high percentage of People and I don't know. I guess it's between 18 and 22. And I'm not sure exactly how it works in Israel, but um, you know, I think it's two years compulsory military service. Could the military handle that if we were to put that in place? Yeah, you know, I, I think Greg, there's a, there's a huge downside to that, right? And and uh, what you have today is you have you have a relatively small professional military force. The benefit of that is that everybody wants to be there, right? Every, everybody's a volunteer. And the other benefit of it is that that the, the military's recruiting standards are pretty darn high. I mean, I, I think it's something like 40%, you know, of the American um, you know, population between 18 and 24 or something. I, I don't quote me on that exactly. I, we can look it up, I guess, but, but, but are, are really eligible for service, you know, based on, on, uh, you know, on, on, uh, you know, high school graduation and, and physical condition and, and, uh, and, you know, Previous criminal activity, for example. So, so I, I, there are all these sort of sorts of disqualifying factors uh, that that are are relevant to, um, to to maintaining high standards. Now, you know, I, I'm not against waivers for some of this, some of this, uh, because I think in general you want to have a larger pool of recruits, but then to be even more selective though, uh, with it within that pool of recruits. And the reason why it's important is, you know, our, 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 our military today, you know, has to respond quite quickly, right? I can't imagine too many scenarios when there's going to be really a, 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 an opportunity for a deliberate mobilization in response to the kind of threats that we face in our increasingly interconnected world. Um, and we need forces that, can, that are, are, are ready, you know, every day in the active force. 
and and of course uh, we need you know we, we need capable National Guard and reserves as well. That's a great way to serve. I, I, I recommend to a lot of students, uh, you know, at, at universities is is to is to you know, to join the reserves, join the National Guard, uh, and and uh, and then also I think for our young people. I mean, serve early. I mean, maybe do that as your first, you know, figure out what, where you want to make a contribution and, and do that early in life because it will open up doors, I think, for, for so many uh, so many young people that they, that, that they can only imagine. Doors in terms of, you know, the friendships they're going to make, uh, those less tangible rewards of service that are difficult to imagine uh, in, in advance. You know, the being part of something bigger than yourself, being part of a, a real team effort where, where team members are willing to sacrifice for one another. So, anyway, I I would encourage young people to do it early, and then and then you know with some people like I did. I mean, I was going to go in for five years in the army after West Point, and you know I had the bonus twenty nine. Yeah, uh, here's a, a different uh, perspective, but one I think worth us spending a second on. What is your view of a space force as the fourth pillar of the military? Funding it, rolling it out, and it, it's probably hand in glove with the competition, again, particularly with China, on the technology and artificial intelligence side. So uh, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, initially initially, I thought, okay, hey, I mean, there, there are all sorts of ways to affect change, right, in, in a big organization, in the U.S. government, in the military, in the Pentagon. You know, I mean, cer certainly, uh, you know, you, you can adjust authorities, uh, you, can, you can adjust resources, you can adjust information flow, or you can pursue a, a large organizational change. And I'll tell you, the last of those is always painful, you know, always takes all kinds of time, and it evokes all kinds of emotion too, right? Well, you know, I, 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 in retrospect now, I'm glad that we did initiate this Space Force. I think now it was the right decision. And I think what you have now is, is leadership within the Space Force as well um, who are very much aware of the challenges we're facing and the tremendous opportunities in space, and they've kind of come up at a time when we've seen the increased commercialization of space as well, which creates tremendous new opportunities uh, for us. So I, I really think it was the right time to do it. It's never going to be easy. You know, it was painful for the Army, you know, to let go of the Air Force in 1947, but I think it turned out okay. And I think uh, I think the Space Force will turn out to be, to have been a, a wise decision. Uh, back to uh, Asia from uh, my colleague, Grace Hyun. To what degree is North Korea a viable threat from a nuclear perspective? And is it worth attempting to collaborate with China to ring fence, or if not China, if they're not a trustworthy partner on that front, to what degree will partnering with other allies in the region and globally work if China continues to support North Korea? Uh, I mean, it is absolutely a threat uh, North, North, and nuclearized, nuclearized North Korea. And, and for a number of reasons. First of all, it's, it's not clear whether or not they have a capable ICBM, uh, you know, long-range uh, missile with the ability to miniaturize a, you know, a nuclear warhead onto that missile, that particular missile. But you know, every launch, every every uh, every uh, you know every nuclear you know, detonation uh, you know and, and experiment they conduct, you know, gets them closer to that. So there's a direct threat, but also you have the threat of what happens to the non-proliferation regime uh, if North Korea gets a nuclear weapon? Well, first of all, like if the only <laughs> hereditary communist dictatorship in the world gets a nuclear weapon, like who doesn't after that, right? I mean, uh, Japan, I think, would have to have a conversation about do they need one for deterrent capabilities? Or South Korea, who, as you recall, back in the 80s, actually did have a nascent uh, uh, nuclear weapons program until we, until we 
stopped it, right? Uh, uh, you know, how about Taiwan and so forth? So, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that you have that problem and you have the you have the fact that North Korea has never met a weapon. It didn't try to sell to somebody, uh, in, including a nuclear weapons program uh, to uh, to Syria uh, until the Israeli Defense Force destroyed it in 2007. So it's a huge problem. What do we do about it? Can we get China to do more? You know, I would like to think so, but I don't think so. Uh, what we, we have a North Korea strategy. China has a U.S. strategy and uses North Korea opportunistically to try to push the United States off the Korean Peninsula as the first step in isolating its main regional rival, Japan. And and um, and if Japan wanted to denuclearize North Korea, they could do it right right now. Right. Not 95 percent of uh, of trade goes across uh, goes across that border and virtually all the fuel, all the fuel sources for uh, for uh, North Korea go across that border. And and so what do, what do we do? I think what we have to do is we have to convince Kim Jong-un that he is safer without the weapons than he is with them. And and we ought to test the thesis that he can be convinced of that through a campaign of maximum pressure and in particular really, really enforcing uh, the, the UN Security Council uh, sanctions that were approved um, in 2017, 2018, with the great work that uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley did in that period of time, she, she was uh, a tremendous, uh, tremendous representative in the, in the UN. So uh, that can be interdiction of these ship-to-ship -ship transfers. It took the French Navy to actually interdict one of these ship-to-ship -ship transfers recently. Our Navy hasn't done one of them, and I don't know why. I believe that the president has authority under Article Two to do it. I'm mean, two presidents now, and and haven't done it. I think there is more that we can do to track down illicit financial flows associated with the North Korean uh, regime. How about secondary sanctions on banks that facilitate financial transfers that 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 uh, that are illegal? Uh, you know, the, there are Chinese banks that do that. You know, for for example. So, you know, I, I think there is a lot a lot more to be done, and we have not ever tested the thesis on, on maximum pressure, and it's worth a try because we know the old pattern, right? <laughs> Of, of uh, you know a provocation, which there may be one coming soon, um, and then after that provocation, a rush to negotiate. North Korea demands a big payoff just for the privilege of talking to them. We give them that payoff, sometimes in cash, but also in sanctions relief. We enter into long, drawn-out, sometimes multinational uh, negotiations with with, uh, with with North Korea that are frustrating and end in a weak agreement. That weak agreement locks in the status quo as the new normal, which I think it would be unacceptable. Uh, and then North Korea just does repeats the pattern, right? Let's not do that again. So I, I think we ought to we ought to give maximum pressure a chance. So far, what the Biden administration has said has been encouraging in that connection, I, I think, and 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 I hope they hold to it. Well, that was well said. Uh, uh, two more topics for you, and we could have gone on for hours. My colleague Joe Martella, and this is a, a good uh, a good topic. Uh, with foreign cyber threats becoming increasingly pervasive, and you've mentioned China and Russia here, Middle East, you get a sense that the U.S. government is appropriately prioritizing the cyber risk from foreign threat actors. Are is the government on this now? You know, not not as much now, not as much as we we need to be, right? I I think, I think there are a lot of positive things that have occurred, right? I, I think the, uh, and the and and first of all, the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency is a, that's the right move. I think now trying to expand the cooperation between the government uh, and, and, and the financial sector, which we saw after, I think it was the 2007 denial of service attacks by the Iranians, 
uh, to, to other areas of the private sector, I think that's long overdue. We have to do more. We have to do more of that. More of that cooperation between uh, between the government and and the private sector. Uh, and and I think really we have to address the incentive gap. There's an incentive gap in critical infrastructure uh, associated with with implementing the security measures that are necessary to harden that infrastructure and to harden enterprises. And, and I, I think if we're not careful, we'll, we'll learn the hard way, you know, with a power grid or, or healthcare systems or something, transportation uh, that, that, uh, that, that are vulnerable uh, to, 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 uh, to offensive cyber capabilities. So there's more to be done. I'll tell you, the, what, I, what I'm encouraged by is like sometimes, you know, sometimes the government gets it right, you know, maybe by mistake and puts the right person in the right job. And General Paul Nakasone in, in, uh, as, at, at NSA is the right person at the right time. And so I, I think in the near term, you know, some, one of our pieces of advice might be to, uh, to, to listen to Paul you know, and, and do what he recommends. Uh, I'm going to go with one more question here. I, I, I had my own, but this is a good one, and uh, it comes from a client, Jay Sinurchia from Island Capital Funds. As the climate changes and the glaciers melt, Russia seems to be taking an aggressive role in the Arctic Circle. Given the world's declining dependence on fossil fuels, is this now a theory in which the U.S. should refrain from engaging, or is that a bad precedent generally? No, it's a it's a bad precedent not to engage there, right? So, and I, I you know, Russia has a actually legitimate geographic claim, but so does the United States, right? So does Greenland, which is why I think that the rumor that President Trump wanted to buy part of Greenland or something. I, I don't know, but. But uh, which actually isn't that bad. That's not a bad idea for us. I thought that too. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, look, it, it, maybe it wasn't approached the right way, but there, there, there's, there was a, a basis there that made a lot of sense from in terms of some of the minerals and other things there, as you know. Anyway, keep well, going. Because because China is getting even more aggressive, right? And China has no no geographic claim, and and I really don't think that that we we're not we haven't seen the end of fossil fuels. What we really need, I think, is a comprehensive you know approach to climate. Uh, that develops real solutions based on on solu solutions that are that, that are viable from a free market perspective in developing economies. And so, what I, I wrote about this in, in Battlegrounds. I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I think this idea that we're just going to jump right to renewables is is crazy, right? We know it, it doesn't work. It's not working in Japan. It didn't. It's not working in Germany. Uh, and and you have China and India, who are the biggest polluters in the world, and all the trends are in the wrong direction. Uh, and then and then Africa is not far behind. So what we need is we, we need we need cheap sources of energy that can displace coal in the near term for, for me. And I, I advise a company that's doing LNG exports, but I'm doing it. I'm doing that advising work because I believe it's a righteous cause right? uh, in terms of of, uh, of economic growth, but especially in, in, in the area of climate change and and just the, the realization that the largest reduction in man-made uh, greenhouse gases occurred when uh, because of the arrival of cheap natural gas in the United States, right? So, so I think LNG is a bridge fuel. Renewables, as everybody knows, right? The, the you know the costs are going down uh, on renewables, and I think the other big part of this is next generation nuclear, and uh, and and, uh, and and so I I think we have to pursue all of those, but we have to recognize that something like the Green New Deal is dead on arrival, it, because even if we go to zero. If we went to zero in the United States, it wouldn't make a darn bit of difference because because the carbon particles don't respect you know national boundaries, right? And and so we, we really have to I think take kind of a hard nosed approach at, at China and India, others, but but by providing them with a, with a viable 
uh, economic alternative that makes sense uh, in their in their economies. Uh, General, this has been fantastic. I did want to ask you, and I'm going to close with a quote, uh, world leaders that uh, you respect the most. Gosh, okay. So, uh, well, you know, I, I've, I've met a lot of them over, over the years. And, and uh, gosh, let me, let me think about who, uh, who I admire the most. I, you know, I, I would say that maybe some people, let me just go around a few hemispheres here, right? And all of them, you know, none of these people are without their flaws, right? So I would say President Santos, I do this, I do this, uh, this weekly show called Unimaginatively Named Battlegrounds, like the book is, long format interviews with world leaders, and it's on podcasts and YouTube. I just did one with President Santos, who I've known for a long time, of Colombia. Uh, and I think I think he's noteworthy because of his courage uh, in, in pursuit of, of security uh, in, in Colombia, but then also in pursuit of peace. You know, it might not work out, right? It's not a done deal in Colombia, but I think he's a courageous individual. I think uh, somebody I met who's impressive world leader-wise is, is Prime Minister Abe. Uh, I think his vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific is bearing out. Uh, I think that, uh, gosh, I, I think that uh, that in, in Iraq, uh, somebody who is a true humanita humanitarian was Prime Minister Haider al-Badi, who I knew, uh, I tell the story of meeting him and and, and my observations of him in, in the book Battlegrounds and his background. Um, I think Mustafa Okadami, who's the who's the president there, who has just a, you know a terrible hand to deal with, uh, to to cope with in Iraq, uh, is also a very good person. Um, Ashraf Ghani in uh, in in Afghanistan, you know he's you know he he's uh, often criticized as being you know too too you know, too directive and and uh, and tone deaf sometimes, but you know what he's a courageous person and he's doing his best for for the country under very arduous conditions. So you made me think of, I guess, uh, you know, people who are who are in tough, un, under tough circumstances, and who led under tough circumstances, right? Uh, from Colombia uh, to you know to uh, to Iraq uh, to uh, Afghanistan, um, and uh, yeah, so those are the ones who who, can, who come to mind, Greg. Well, the uh, <clears throat> and that's a great place to leave it. Uh, the the uh, it's a tour de force around the world in terms of insight. Uh, direct involvement. You're talking to these leaders today. You just came out of the administration. Uh, we're lucky to have you front and center. Thank you so much for, for all of that. And uh, on behalf of our clients and our colleagues, uh, really terrific to have you here. Uh, and please continue to do everything that you're doing to engage and push, uh, push everybody forward. These are topics that are essential to all of us uh, as we still love this country and need it to prosper. So thank you so much for being here, General McMaster. Thanks, Greg. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Take care, everybody. Thank you. I, I always close it with a quote. This one's Harry Truman, and it's in uh, General McMaster's uh, uh, honor. Uh, uh, Harry Truman said the following, quote, people make history and not the other way around. In periods where there is no leadership, society stands still. Progress occurs when courageous, skillful leaders seize the opportunity to change things for the better. That's General McMaster. So thank you again for being here. Thank you to all of our clients and colleagues. Uh, stay well. All the best. We'll see you soon.